You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first reading comes from the book of Jeremiah, which can be found in your pew Bibles in front of you. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is from Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. You can find that on page 512 of your Bibles. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord.
Please stand for the reading of the gospel. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and will have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Ben, first off, let me just go ahead and be so presumptuous as to speak for absolutely everybody in the room when I say we love you. And we are gathered because we love you and because we love what the Lord has been doing in your life. We love what the Lord is doing in your life. And we have tremendous hope in what the Lord will continue to do in you and through you in the days ahead. Now, that's the last thing I'm going to say to Ben. Everything else is for the rest of us. All right. Gregory of Nazianzus wrote, who is prepared to respond to the call of pastoral ministry in Christ's church? No one, if he will listen to my judgment and accept my advice. This is of all things most to be feared. This is the extremest of dangers in the eyes of everyone who understands the magnitude of success and the utter ruin of failure. So Gregory wrote that uh, when he was forcibly ordained as a pastor by his dad, who was a bishop. And he tried to run away, and they found him, and they dragged him back, and they made him a pastor against his will. And he was not alone. He actually stands in a long tradition of pastors running away from their calling. Let's just think about a few. Moses said, I'm not a good enough speaker. Jeremiah said, I'm too young. Isaiah said, my mouth is unclean. Jonah said, I just don't want to, right? On through church history, Ambrose of Milan, unexpected ordination, he fled. He hid at a friend's house. They had to like drag him out of a closet to go make him a priest. St. Augustine was forced into ordination and he wept through his own ordination service. Pope Gregory protested his election as Pope and ran away. Now, why did all these people run away? Was it the difficulty of preaching? Was it the challenge of administering a local parish? Was it the long hours of reduced income? No. It was the weight of the calling, the realization of the immense mystery that a pastor is required to bear. Now, the same reality is described in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, which Lewis read just a few minutes ago. And it's that weight is described as the mystery of faith. Those that are ordained are called to hold the mystery of the faith. And the reason why so many ran away is because holding that is heavy. It's too heavy for, for some to hold. It says, the text says they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And it's a very puzzling phrase. Used in this sense, the word hold in the original Greek means, kind of conjures up this image of a cup holding water or wine. A deacon is to hold the mystery of faith the way a cup holds wine. 
And a clear conscience doesn't have to mean perfect belief or perfect faith. It doesn't mean flawless, but it means honest and forthright, sincere, genuine, no crossed fingers behind your back when you take your vows. Now, what is the mystery? Well, you're actually going to hear it. We're actually going to say it together later in this service. When Bishop Chris celebrates the Eucharist at the Lord's table, he's going to hold forth the bread and the wine, and he's going to say these words. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Say it with me. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's the mystery. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's the mystery of our faith. And this evening, not only for the benefit of Ben, but for the benefit of us all, I'd like to closely examine what it means for a Christian to hold the mystery of faith in our present cultural moment. Okay? We're not all being ordained tonight. But we are all called to hold the mystery of faith. So what does it mean to hold the mystery of faith in our time? We're going to work through those three phrases. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ has died. It's a call. A call to embody sacrifice in a therapeutic age. Christ is risen. It's the call to offer hope in a cynical age. Christ will come again. It's the call to prepare for death in a distracted age. Let's take them one at a time. Christ has died, embodying sacrifice in a therapeutic age. So what do we mean when we say therapeutic? We mean that one of the central values of our age is the relief of human suffering, be it physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And before we go any further, we must heartily affirm the goodness of this, right? We all long for the end of human suffering, and in an effort to love our neighbors, we can and should find ourselves seeking their relief and seeking their comfort in all ways. However, the imbalance of our time, if you're willing to think about it, has led to a valuing of comfort as an ultimate good in and of itself, and therefore anyone and anything that brings discomfort or even suffering is viewed with suspicion at best and as an enemy at worst. And so into our therapeutic age, we are each in some shape or form being molded into what we might call therapeutic Christians. And this sensibility has become not only present within the church, but commonplace. It's so normal, we don't even notice it anymore. We attend churches and programs and ministries based on what they can do for us, right? Why else would you do it? What can we get out of it? The way we are fed, the way we're nurtured, the way we're thrilled, the way we're consoled, the way we're inspired. And I need this. My anxieties need assuaging. My wounds need healing. My stress needs alleviating. My pain needs relief. And in a therapeutic faith, the focus is on meeting my felt needs. But Christ has died. And so into our therapeutic age comes this mystery. Christ has died. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Alleluia. Jesus comes to us, not as a guru to apply spiritual therapy, but as a lamb for the altar. The Apostle Paul writes of this in Philippians chapter 2. He writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, in his incarnation, Christ empties himself and comes to us, therefore, empty. (laughs) He comes to us weak. And in his crucifixion, Christ, the empty vessel, is crushed. And we, we the ones who receive his sacrifice and put our trust in him, are ordained to take up our crosses as well and follow him. And so all Christians are to embody sacrifice. Our very lives are to be emptied and crushed. This is the way of Jesus. 
And so while we do seek the comfort and relief of our neighbors, and we do so at cost, even great cost, maybe even ultimate cost to ourselves, in this way, you know what a Christian becomes? A Christian, anyone who takes this up, this embodying the sacrifice of Jesus, they become an icon, an image through which Christ may be seen. That's what an icon is, after all. This is the first way in which we hold the mystery of faith. Christ has died. We hold this by embodying sacrifice in a therapeutic age. But Christ did not only die. Yes, this is good. Christ also rose. So we not only embody sacrifice, we also offer hope. And we do so in a cynical age. Now, what do we mean by cynical? In a Harper's Magazine article titled, The Habits of Highly Cynical People, (laughs) cheerful, uh, Rebecca Solnit, the author, writes, Cynicism is, first of all, a style of presenting oneself. It takes pride, more than anything, in not being fooled and not being foolish. This is the root cause of cynicism, not being fooled and not looking foolish. This reminds me of the Narnian dwarves in C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, which concludes the whole Narnia series. And in the story, you've got this group of dwarves who have been lied to over and over again. They've been manipulated over and over again. And they have decided that they will no longer believe anyone who offers them anything that appears to be good. And so they sit huddled together in a circle, refusing food, refusing water, shutting their eyes, and believing that it is night even while the sun is shining. They're trapped behind these internal psychological iron bars of cynicism. And so dwelling in this kind of cynical age, all of us in some shape or form are being molded not only into therapeutic Christians, but cynical therapeutic Christians. We speak of the ends justifying the means. We're suspicious of earnest, guileless, sincere people. We're suspicious of the bends of the world. Everybody's got an angle. Everybody's got an agenda, right? Especially pastors. And so we buy into the idea that in the end, there's only power and power always wins. But here's the thing. Even in the midst of our smug cynicism, we end up tipping our hand. We betray ourselves. Despite our cynicism, we're desperate for, we're desperately hungry for earnest people, for cheerful people, for hopeful people. How else could you explain the incredible success of the TV show Ted Lasso, right? If we're all so cynical, why do we all think Ted is so great? He's the opposite of this, right? a buoyant character who refuses to ever give in to cynicism. Christ is risen. And so into our cynical age comes this mystery. Christ is risen. Christ who died has been raised to life. And the mystery of Christ's resurrection speaks an incomprehensible word of hope into our cynical age. Just think about the way that Jesus offered hope to those who had been ensnared in the tangles of cynicism in his own time in the first century. Jesus raises the young girl from the dead and he says to the group, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. And what's everybody do? They laugh, right? It's a cynical laughter. Jesus raises Lazarus. And when the cynics blithely warn him of a bad odor of the rotting corpse, right? Jesus instructs Mary Magdalene to go tell the disciples, go tell Peter. Why tell Peter? Well, he's the one who's lost hope, not only for the kingdom, but for himself, right? Jesus and Thomas, Thomas, come here. Put your hand into the wounds in my body. I'm alive, man. Embrace hope. Leave your cynicism behind. All who trust in the Lord Jesus are seeking to embody his sacrifice in the world. These become bearers of hope. If the suffering of the Christian makes them an icon of Christ, then the hope of the Christian, you know what it makes them? It makes them a holy fool. The suffering of a Christian makes them an icon. The hope of the Christian makes them a holy fool. 
And we holy fools who hold the mystery that Christ is risen, we do so by offering the hope of resurrection to our neighbors. So what are we talking about? Christ has died, embodying sacrifice in a therapeutic age. Christ is risen, offering hope in a cynical age. Finally, Christ will come again, preparing for death in a distracted age. Now, when I say distracted age, what I mean is a culture that denies the inevitability of death, a culture that functions as if death were not coming and therefore requires no preparation. And this takes a variety of shapes. You've got the technocrats who insist that physical immortality is like right around the corner if we can just get the science right. So you've got cryonics freezing the human body to be later thawed and reanimated. You've got this constant search for the singularity. How many people preach about singularity? Come on. This colossal leap forward that the human body and technology are going to merge at some point, or mind uploading, transferring human consciousness out of the physical body into digital devices. Is that going to happen before the scientists who are working on them die? It is not. But then there's the rest of us, right? That all, that's a little far out. What about the rest of us? Most of us simply have our attention diverted with the busyness and amusements of our lives, and we're too distracted to slow down and ponder the imminence of death. And when someone talks about that kind of stuff, and when someone preaches about it in a sermon like this, it makes us a little squirmy, right? We're suggesting that we're supposed to be doing something that nobody really actually wants to do. Most people live with a kind of functional belief in immortality. So here's a really uncomfortable question. How do you want to die? If you got to choose, what would you choose? Most people who are polled answer this with some sort of like sudden and unexpected catastrophe, right? Like dying in your sleep painlessly. That's the number one answer most people tend to give. I've got a neighbor, this is true, who conversely says he would like to die slowly and painfully. And when I asked him what on earth he meant by that crazy answer, he said, I want to contemplate and prepare well. As strange as it might sound, there's actually something profoundly wise about this. Henry Nouwen put it this way. Most people in our society do not want to disturb each other with the idea of death. They want a man to die without ever having realized that death was approaching. And so we all kind of want what Adolf Huxley described in Brave New World. Quote, youth almost unimpaired until 60 and then crack the end. Right? No aging, no loss of faculties, no inhibitions on pleasure. But the mystery says that Christ will come again. This age will end, and with it, our lives, all will be judged, and only those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb will be saved. In our gospel lesson, Jesus uses the dual imagery of a master returning home and a thief breaking in. That's an interesting parallel. To impress upon his disciples and upon us the criticality of readiness. And often this passage and others like it are used to interpret uh, to mean that all Christians have to live with this kind of sense of urgency. And that's good. That's appropriate. Um, It does mean that. However, what is at least equally likely (laughs) is that before Christ returns, you're going to die. It's at least equally likely. And so readiness, keeping watch, the calls of this mystery that Christ will come again may be best applied as preparation for death. There may be no aspect of theology less popular today than the return of Christ to judge all things. And there may be no aspect of life less popular than the contemplation of and preparation for death, which is why we must hold the mystery. Christ will come again. If the suffering of the Christian makes them an icon and the hope of the Christian makes them a holy fool, then the reminder of death makes the Christ follower a physician a doctor. 
Christ has died. The call to embody sacrifice in a therapeutic age. Christ has risen. The call to offer hope in a cynical age and Christ will come again. The call to prepare for death in a distracted age. And if you're thinking to yourself right now, like, look, pastor, this is really heavy for an evening service. I can't do all of this. The weight is too much. Ah, the weight is too much. This is exactly why people run away from ordination. The weight is too much. It's too much for me. Who can bear this? And so we might begin to empathize with the prophets and the pastors who fled from their calling. We might begin to wonder whether Ben really wanted to turn up tonight, right? But there's good news because, dear friends, you are not only called to hold the mystery of faith, but you are even more mysteriously actually held by the mystery of faith. Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, your life is hidden in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Your life is hidden in Christ. You are called to hold the mystery, yes. You're sent into the world bearing it as the good news of the gospel for all people. But dear brothers and sisters, you are also being held. Your life is hidden in Christ. Christ himself is now your life. And so you don't have to run away. You don't have to flee. You don't have to run away from the weight of this calling because if you you are in Christ Jesus then the weight is actually you and he's holding you. He did not only die, he died for you, bearing the penalty of your weakness in himself. He did not only rise, but he rose for you, securing your future both in body and in soul. And he will not only come again, but beloved, he will come for you to claim you as his own. Your life is upheld by the mystery of Christ. And so you know what all those pastors did? They all came back. Moses, Jonah, Jeremiah, Isaiah discovered that their weakness was not a liability, but rather an opportunity for the strength of the Lord's provision. They were held by the Lord, and in his gentle hands they did not fall. Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jonah, they all returned. Gregory, Ambrose, Augustine, they returned. Why? because they trusted that Christ's power would be made perfect in their weakness, and they trusted that the mystery of faith they were called to hold would actually hold them. And so, I lied earlier. I said I wasn't going to say anything more to Ben. I'm going to say one more thing. Ben, a charge to you, brother. The charge is for you to to hold and to also be held by the mystery of faith. If any of us truly understood the gravity of the call to pastoral ministry, We would, like Gregory and Ambrose of Milan and Augustine and Pope Gregory and Moses and Jonah and Jeremiah and Isaiah, we would all object, we'd decline, we'd flee, we'd hide in closets and our friends would have to come find us. But you, Ben, do not need to object and you don't need to run away because, brother, your life is hidden in Christ and Christ's life envelops you and unfolds you. You rest within him. Your whole life is hidden within him. And so, dear brother, be held by the mystery. Christ's death was for you, Benjamin. His sacrifice is for your good. Christ's resurrection is for you, Benjamin, which is the source of your hope. And Christ's return is for you, Benjamin, and prepares you for your own death. Your life is hidden within this mystery. It holds you. Therefore, you, upon being ordained a deacon in Christ's church, may go forth bearing this mystery and holding it for us. We need you to embody sacrifice in our therapeutic age. We want you to give us three easy steps to spiritual spiritual fulfillment. Don't do it. We will ask for it. Don't give it to us. You must show us the way of the cross. Second, we need you to offer hope to our cynical age. 
We are prone to sneer and mock that which is innocent and sincere and childlike and guileless, and we will lose heart and we will want to compromise with wickedness and cynicism. And we need you to proclaim to us the hope of the resurrection. And third, Ben, we need you to prepare us for death, and we are very distracted. We do not want to be reminded of our death. We don't want to attend other people's funerals, and we don't want to walk in graveyards. You must help prepare us for our death and for the return of the king. Brother, we love you, and we respect you. We are grateful for you. We are praying for you, and we will continue to pray for you. It doesn't end here. May you hold and be held by the mystery of Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.